Luke, chapter 12, verse 32 through 46. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Blessed are those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the fruit, faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him charge in all of his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The word of the Lord. Ah, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, as I said, I've been thinking all week about a poem by Langston Hughes. He was one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, and the, the poem's printed on the first page of your bulletin. He, uh, he was also a leader of what's known as the Harlem Renaissance, uh, so he wrote a lot about the African-American experience. But in the poem, Langston Hughes says, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. And I think it's really interesting the way he says this. 
Um, on the one hand, as a person of color in Jim Crow America in the beginning of the 20th century, he was all too familiar with racism and oppression and violence and marginalization. So he says, I'm tired of waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. But then he says, aren't you? As if to draw all of us into this, aren't you tired of waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? I don't know if that's your experience in life, but I'm willing to bet that Langston Hughes is touching something in all of us that is yearning for the world to be a better place, a beautiful place. And not just the world, but our lives as well. Because there are our world and our lives, there are hurt places, there are broken places, there are wounded, empty, and dark places. There are places, not just in our world, but in our lives, that are crying out for healing and justice and redemption and wholeness, that are crying out for a world, for everything that's falling apart to be put right. We're waiting for that. Now, here's the question. What does waiting look like? The answer is it depends on what you're waiting for or rather, whom you're waiting for. Because one of the main things that Jesus taught over and over and over again is that one day he's going to come again. It's, it's called the second coming. Jesus said, I will return one day to earth. You, you don't know when it's going to happen. Don't bother trying to figure it out. I'm going to come like a thief in the night, but, but make no mistake, I will return again to the world. That's one of the main things Jesus taught over and over. Um, now, I want us to think about that for a second, because a lot of people, even people that wouldn't identify as Christians, would say that Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great teacher. What kind of teacher says something like that? And, and what does he mean by that? And even more for us, what does that mean for us, that Jesus is going to come again? We're finishing a series this morning on a long section in the middle of the Gospel of Luke that's known as the travel narrative or the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified and rise from the dead. And as he's going, he invites his disciples to follow him so that he can teach them uh, what it means to follow him. He invites them on a spiritual journey. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus or if you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. One of the big questions is, what does it look like to be waiting for Jesus to be coming again? He shows us in this passage. And it's a very real question for us because very often the criticism comes rightly um, that people will say that Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And that Christians are so focused on some future disembodied heaven, that they are totally apathetic about the world that we live in. Is that what Jesus taught? That we should be apathetic about this world? He answers that question in this passage. And it's all wrapped up in this idea of the kingdom of God. What does that mean, the kingdom of God? Jesus is showing us three things in this passage. And by the way, I've been helped tremendously by many other uh, teachers and preachers and scholars on this, especially my former pastor, Tim Keller, in New York City. So nothing I'm about to tell you is stuff that I've thought up, and you should take great comfort in that. Um, but... Jesus shows us three things this morning, all right? The promise of the kingdom, the service of the kingdom, and the provision of the kingdom. The promise, the service, 
and the provision of the kingdom, all right? First, Jesus talks about the promise of the kingdom. If you look at the very beginning, um, in verse 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then he launches into this whole thing about his second coming. That means there's really no way to understand the second coming of Jesus without understanding the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? One of the best places to understand this really is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, he's talking to his disciples, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. So he's talking about his return to earth. He says, Those who have left home or family for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now here's the bit I want to focus on. Jesus says, In the renewal of all things, that the word that he uses is a Greek word, uh, palingenesia, which is really a combination of two words. Palin, which means again, and genesia, from which we get our English word genesis, which just means creation. You put those two words together and you have creation again, or even better, new creation. Jesus is talking about in the new creation, in the new world. What he's doing is, is he's tapping into the main storyline of the whole Bible. And in fact, one of my hopes for you, if you come regularly to Central West End Church, is that by this point, I would hope that you're actually getting a little sick of hearing me talk about this. But my experience, however, is that no matter how often I talk about this, this idea is so foreign, so alien to us, that it's kind of like, you know, the grown-ups in Charlie Brown, wah, 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 just kind of bounces off our ears because we're so accustomed to thinking about heaven as some future, you know, we're floating around on clouds with wings kind of a thing. That is not the main storyline of the Bible. The main storyline of the Bible is all about God's commitment to renew this world, a new creation, a creation again. So remember the story in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but because of human rebellion, human sin, everything's falling apart. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind. God's promise is that one day that, that renewal that we're longing for is going to come true. We're waiting for a world that's falling apart to be put together again. The kingdom of God is when God puts all things right. So it's kind of like, you remember how Jesus teaches us to pray? That, that famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer? He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you see what he means? The kingdom of God is any place where things are exactly the way God wants them to be. The kingdom of God is any place where, where things are exactly the way God wants them to be. Now let's take that one step farther. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. That means God has a plan for this world and his plan is not to destroy this world but to renew it. Palingenesia. New creation. Friends, this is the great promise throughout the Bible. So read Isaiah 25, or read Psalm 96, or read Amos chapter 9. If any Jewish person in the first century, and this was Jesus' primary audience, 
They were waiting for this. They were longing for this. So when they heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Palingonesia, new creation. In fact, let me put an even finer point on this. Can we, um, let's set aside spiritual things for just a second, speculative spiritual things. Let's just do a little black and white history. Can we do that? Um, you know um, how in our modern Western secular world, we love this idea of progress, don't we? Where did that idea come from? When we talk about being on the right side of history, where did that idea come from? We're looking at it. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the Bible. It comes from this, this first century Jewish prophet, the Son of God, who came and started teaching about a new creation that was coming into this world, that was going to change the world, change the, 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 our possibilities and our future for the world. In the ancient world, the way everybody saw the history up until that point was this. They saw it as a never-ending cycle of birth, suffering, and death. A never-ending cycle of birth, suffering, and redeath. And this wasn't just Greek philosophy in the West. This was and continues to be Hinduism and Buddhism in the East. A never-ending cycle of birth, suffering, and death. And if you really want to get into some heavy-duty philosophy on this, you remember how Mufasa put it to Simba in The Lion King? <laughs> he says, son... Um, you remember, you got to remember that everything exists together in a delicate balance from the crawling ants to the leaping antelope. And Simba's a little confused and he says, but dad, don't we eat the antelope? <laughs> and his dad says, yes, Simba, but remember that when we die, our bodies become grass and the antelope eat the grass. So everything is connected in the great circle of life. That is exactly what the ancient world believed about history. A never-ending cycle of birth, suffering, death, rinse, repeat. There was no changing the world. There was no progress or making the world a better place. The, the only reason we believe that in our world is because that is a direct result of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. But in our modern Western secular world, as the great Christian writer Mark Sayers puts it, we want the kingdom, but without the king. We, we have jettisoned the biblical foundations for this. We still want progress. We still want utopia. We're still committed to working hard for it, but we've ditched God. We've ditched the biblical foundations for it. But this is exactly what Jesus is promising us. New creation, a world made new. This is no mere teradiddle or nonsense or pie in the sky wishing for something that's never gonna be real. It is a very real promise. Now, why have we spent all of this time talking about this? Here's why. Everything we've just been talking about is, is, is about a, a promise, about a future reality. It's coming in the future. It hasn't arrived yet. It's a future promise. It hasn't arrived yet, except it has. What do I mean by that? You know, in um, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, the Apostle Paul, he talks about what does it mean to become a Christian? When you become a Christian, what actually happens to you? When that, when that happens. In, in Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, he says this. He says that God saved us through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us through Jesus Christ. 
He's saying that becoming a Christian means that you have been regenerated through the Holy Spirit. When he uses that word regeneration, guess what word he's using? Palinganesia. In other words, Paul is saying that that the the new creation, kingdom power of God, that one day in the future is going to renew the whole cosmos. That becoming a Christian means that power has come into your life right now and it begins to change you right now. It's like a spaceship spaceship from the future landing in your heart. It's a future power that becomes a present reality in your life. So, So that's what the gospel is, a future power that becomes a present reality in your life, that that when you become a Christian, it's not so much a power that you are exerting on the inside as much as a power, God's power, that comes upon you from the outside. Now listen and understand, this is just a seed, this power. We're still waiting for the full flower. We're still waiting for the fullness of that power to manifest itself in our life, but it does begin to change you. And here's why this is so important. This means that the gospel, okay, becoming a Christian is not a matter of, of, it's not a program of moral self-improvement. In other words, becoming a Christian is not you saying, all right, now I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get really disciplined. I'm going to start working really hard. I'm going to pull it together. No, the gospel is not a power that you exert. It's a power that comes inside of you from God. Now, please understand, I am not saying that it's not possible to change your life through self-discipline. Of course it is. It's a good thing. It's an awesome thing. Um, I went to rehab when I was 28, and I got clean and sober before I became a Christian. You can change your life through self-discipline, but here's the difference. When you change your life through your own self-discipline, you're the one who's still in control. You're the one who's in charge, and especially, you are the one who decides what needs to change and what doesn't. When God comes into your life, you are no longer in control. He is. God is in charge. God is in control, and especially, God is the one who now decides what's going to change in your life. And make no mistake, God is going to change things in your life that you would never dream of changing. You'll be like, wait, no, I like that part of my life. I don't want to change that. God is going to change things in your life that you would never dream of changing. He's going to take you places that you would never dream of going. Okay? That's what happens. The power of God comes into your life, new creation. And that leads to our second point. Okay? We've just talked about the promise of the kingdom. It's a future promise, but it's a present reality in our lives right now. Now, if that's the case, the next thing we see is the service of the kingdom. Because let's come back to our beginning question. What does it look like to be waiting for Jesus to come again? If you look in our passage, uh, Jesus begins to teach us about this. He calls his followers to be a foretaste of this future reality. It's kind of like an appetizer. You know, if you're dying of starvation, is an appetizer going to really give you the nourishment that you need? Is it going to bring your body back to full health? Of course not. But an appetizer does make a kind of a big difference, doesn't it? I mean, in the first place, it really takes the edge off your hunger. But in the second place, an appetizer is a promise of more to come. It's it's like a guarantee, a down payment of more to come. Jesus is calling his followers to be like an appetizer for the kingdom. That means that, that he's calling every single one of us to be a foretaste of a future reality by making a difference in this present reality. 
To, to follow Jesus in this world, waiting for Jesus in this world, means being a foretaste of a future reality by making a difference in this present reality. And he gives us all kinds of practical, tangible ways to do that. But let me just point out a few of the big ones in this passage. First, being a sign of the kingdom means caring for the poor. So again, at the beginning, in verse 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom has come into your life, but then immediately he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, we had a sermon a few weeks ago that was completely devoted to money, so I'm not going to do that to you again this week. But let me at least say this much. When the kingdom power of God comes into your life, it completely transforms your relationship to money. So look at how Jesus says this here. He says, fear not, your father has has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's talking about something that has already happened. You've already received the kingdom. Therefore, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus is not saying, now be generous, be a good person. And if you're really committed, if you're really devoted, then God's kingdom power will come into your life. No. He says, God's already brought his love and his power into your life. He's already been generous to you. Therefore, that transforms what you do with your money. And by the way, you see the same thing if you um, read throughout the Gospel of Luke, or if you were to go to the book of Acts, which is the continuation of Luke's Gospel. Uh, if you go to Acts chapter 2, you see in, uh, in Jerusalem, right after Jesus was ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples, transforms their lives. Right after that, it says that that they had all things in common, that they were selling their possessions and goods and giving to anyone who had need. Down comes the spirit, down comes the power, transforms their relationship to money. Or if you go just a couple of chapters later to Acts chapter four, again, the Holy Spirit fills the believers. In fact, it shakes the room where they were staying. And then immediately it says that anyone who had land or houses was selling them and they gave to anyone who had need. Anytime the power of God comes into your life, one of the signs that it's really happened, that this new creation power of God has come into your life, is it radically transforms your relationship to money. So for instance, here at Central West End Church, part of our budget every year is we devote money to caring for the needs of, of those who are under-resourced. As this church grows, one of our big things we want to do is see the, the ratio, the percentage of money increase that we're able to devote to caring for the needs of the community around us. That's a big part of our vision here. Being a sign of the kingdom means caring for the poor. Secondly, another sign of the kingdom is lowly service. Lowly service. What do I mean by that? If you look at verses 35 and 36, Jesus says to his disciples, be dressed ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return. Now that phrase, dressed for service, is a way of translating a phrase that literally says, gird your loins. Aren't you glad the translators smoothed that out for you? <laughs> what does that mean, gird your loins? In the ancient world, people wore long flowing robes. So if you had work to do or some strenuous activity you had to engage in, then you had to pick up your robe and you would tuck it into your belt as a way of preparing for service. But here's the thing. Only slaves did this. 
Only people in the lowest social classes girded their loins because they were the only ones doing that kind of work. Aristocrats, lords and ladies never girded their loins. They never did that. But Jesus is saying, if you're my follower, you do it. That you should gird your loins. You should take the attitude and the position of a servant. Another sign of the kingdom that the new creation, kingdom of power of God has come into your life is that it begins to erode your sense of self-importance, to erode your sense of social status. It begins to erode your resistance to doing things that you think are beneath you. For a, a servant in the kingdom of God, there is nothing that is beneath you. That means that Christians, servants in God's kingdom, should be willing to do things that no one else will do. They should be willing to serve in ways that no one else is willing to serve. It means that when you meet somebody, you're you're not automatically thinking, now what's the social arrangement here? Do I serve them or or do they serve me? When you meet people, the, the default way of thinking should be, how can I meet their needs? How can I serve this person? What can I do for them? Jesus is saying that that. Everyone, every servant in God's kingdom should take the attitude and the position of a servant. Radically changes social barriers. Radically changes social boundaries and social structures, okay? So first, caring for the poor. Secondly, lowly service. But one of the last signs that Jesus shows us here uh, of what it means to wait for him and to be a sign of the kingdom is a passion for justice. And I love the way this actually gets brought out in verses... um, Uh, in verse 42, uh, notice Jesus says, who then is that faithful and wise manager whom the, the master puts in charge of his servants, notice how he says, to give them their food allowance at the proper time. Now, here's what this means. In the ancient world, Um, Every household, one of the servants in that household was the household manager, and it was that servant's job to make sure that all of the other servants were fed. So, if, if there was a household manager and in, in a household and some of the servants were getting fed regularly, but other servants uh, were having to fend for themselves or weren't being fed at all, then that household manager was being negligent. Jesus is saying that waiting for him, one of the signs of waiting for him means that we should all be um, like that household manager. In other words, we should all be very concerned to do whatever we can to make sure that everyone in the world is being treated justly. And that especially comes out to make sure that everyone's getting their food. You know what? That's justice. On, on the one hand, it's, it's what's called distributive justice. Distributive justice means that everyone's getting a fair share. So if there's some people that are gorged in luxury, but then there are others that are dying of starvation, there's no distributive justice. And we see a lot of that, not just in our world, but even in this country especially with minorities and especially historically continues to be the case with um, our African-American brothers and sisters. There's still a lot of social inequity in our world. There's no distributive justice. Jesus is saying serving him in his kingdom means paying attention to that, trying to do something about that. It also means procedural justice. Procedural justice is when the decisions about how things are done are fair to everyone. So that means that if some people are receiving favor because they belong to one group, but then other people are being denied basic rights because they belong to a different group, there's no procedural justice. Jesus is saying that we should be concerned with 
all of this justice, distributive justice, procedural justice, that as servants in his kingdom, we should be passionate about seeing that, that the world, as much as we can, is being um, uh, in equity, okay? Now, we don't have the power to make sure to guarantee that happens, but we should be doing everything we can to do that, okay? Caring for the poor, lowly service, sacrificial service, um, passion for justice. Jesus gives us these signs. Uh, these are ways of being a foretaste of a future reality by making a difference in this present reality. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about the promise of the kingdom, that this future power of world renewal comes into our lives and starts changing us right now. Secondly, we've just seen the service of the kingdom. That we should be invested, engaged in things like caring for the poor, sacrificial service, passion for justice, that being a, a Christian waiting for Jesus does not mean that we're supposed to be apathetic about this world. In fact, we should be the most engaged in those kinds of things. But lastly, Jesus is showing us the provision of the kingdom. Because here's the question. How does this new creation, kingdom power of God, actually come into our lives? Because remember, all the things we've just been talking about, caring for the poor, sacrificial service, passion for justice, these are all things our world already cares about. And yeah, I mentioned how um, the fact that our world cares about these things is really the direct result of Jesus' teaching, of the Bible's teaching on the kingdom of God. But nonetheless, many people today ask, and they ask very frequently, well, why can't we just have the kingdom without the king? Why, why can't we just take those values and run with them? In fact, especially a lot of people would ask, you know, why do we still need this archaic primitive belief in God? And especially this archaic primitive belief in a savior who has to die for us and shed his blood for us. Why, why do we need that? Why, why can't we just ditch that? Here's why. I, I don't know if you noticed at the end of the passage, but when Jesus was talking about the injustice Things kind of take a dark turn. I don't know if you caught, caught on to that. In verse 45, he says, suppose the servant says, that's you and me, my master is taking a long time, and then he begins to beat the other servants to eat and drink and get drunk, injustice. He says, the master of that servant will come and cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Yikes. Let me ask you something. Does that verse bother you at all? There are a lot of people in our world that would say, you know, this is one of the things that really bothers me the most about Christianity. I prefer to think of God as a God of love, but I really have a hard time with this idea of, of a God of wrath and judgment. This is a very real problem. But let's think about this together. Do, you, do we cry out for justice in this world? Of course we do. I just, uh, you know, we just began a new decade. There were a bunch of articles and essays that came out in the new year that were all talking about what are some of the dynamics and themes and, and um, uh, things that were really prevalent in this last decade between 2010 and 2020. What are some of the most prominent characteristics of that decade? Many of the essays pointed out that one of the most prominent aspects of this past decade is moral outrage over injustice. I don't know if you noticed that. People are crying out for justice. And even more than that, one of the most prominent things in our last decade was, was that people were demanding judgment for those who pervert justice. Now let's ask the question, why would we expect God to care less about justice than we do? 
I mean, if you think about it, a God who cares less about justice than we do is not a God worthy of our worship. In fact, if there is no God who one day will bring ultimate, perfect, total justice, then it's really left to us in our hands to to work for justice and bring judgment in this world. How's that working out for our world so far? Viva la revolucion, anyone? The only way that we can become people of real justice and real peace is if we have confidence, not just in a God of love, but in a God of both love and justice. Otherwise, we will take justice into our own hands. We will take judgment into our own hands. We will become oppressors, even in the, in the midst of us trying to overthrow the other oppressors of the world. In other words, we will no longer be servants, but we will have taken to ourselves the, the rule and the rights and the authority and the prerogatives of the king. We will have become servants that are now taking the place of the king. Is there anything more unjust than that? Is there anything more deserving of judgment than that? In other words, we're going to be the ones, we're going to say, well, look, I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who's in charge. We're the ones now who decide what's just and what's unjust. We're the ones who decide who deserves judgment and who doesn't deserve judgment. We will have become servants who've taken the place of the king. Don't you see we all have a tendency towards that? to take justice and judgments into our own hands. We're servants who've taken the place of a king, which means the real question is, how is God supposed to put the world right? How is God supposed to bring real perfect justice into this world without bringing judgment down on us? The answer is in verse 37. Jesus says, blessed are those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Did you hear what Jesus is saying? He says that when he comes to renew the world, he's going to dress himself to serve. Jesus is saying, I'm going to gird my loins. I'm going to take the position of a servant and I'm going to sit you down at a table and I'm going to wait on you. Friends, the only way Jesus can do that in the future is because he's already done it for us in the past. We are servants who've taken the place of the king. And the only way our hearts get changed, the only way our world gets changed is if we see Jesus, the true king, who took the place of a servant. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He girded his loins. He dressed himself for service. Jesus stripped himself of all of his robes of glory and grandeur and splendor and majesty in order to garb himself as a servant to take the place of a slave. Because on the cross, the true king Jesus took the place of a servant in order that he could save servants like you and me who've taken the place of a king. Jesus was cut in pieces for us. Not literally, but worse than that. His soul was ripped apart. Cosmically, spiritually, infinitely, Jesus was torn from union with the Father. He took the judgment that we deserve so we could receive the love that he deserves. We're servants who've taken the place of kings. Jesus is the true king who took the place of his servant so that he could love you, heal you, and transform you. And when that power begins to come into your life, that's the power that begins to transform you day by day week by week, month by month, year by year, more and more into the servant that you were created to be. 
Dear ones, we are all waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. The promise of the kingdom is that one day God is going to bring this renewal, this beauty, this glory, this restoration, this regeneration that we long for. He is going to bring it fully, completely, perfectly, and ultimately. But until that day, Jesus calls us to be part of his wait staff because that's what waiting for Jesus means. It's not just sitting around apathetically, sitting around passively. It's serving tables. Gospel waiting means serving tables. It means being part of God's wait staff. And if that's you, if that's happened to you, then we're all called to be a part of this gospel waiting for the Lord Jesus. Are you willing to let go of your conditions? Are you willing to let go of of your control over your life and say, God, you could do whatever you want with me. You can change whatever you want to change in my life. And, And if that happens to you, are you willing to become a part of God's wait staff in this world? to wait for him like that. We're all waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. And Jesus' promise is that one day it's going to happen and that until that day, this is what it looks like to be waiting for him. Shall we wait for him together? Let's pray.